Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 69 for Friday 26th of October 2018. I'm Jeremy Sear and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's been happening to our country, what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it. This week's guest host is returning guest host Kristen O'Connell. Welcome back Kristen. Thanks Jeremy, how are you doing? I think that the resolution on this video call is amazing. I can see <laughs> there is there is barely any lag. It is It is amazingly high quality. Although for some reason I can hear a bit of me coming through from your mic. I'm not quite sure why. I'm not sure why either. Oh, because I'm in the same room. <laughs> right, we're in the same room. That's why, it's, that's why it's happening. This has been a weird week because it started off with Wentworth and then it continued with Wentworth because the confidence with which Anthony Green and everybody else declared it later on turned out to be not quite so justified. Yeah, it was a little bit of a nail-biter for uh, really only a few hours there, but I was very relieved to see that we have one fewer Liberal Member of Parliament following last weekend's result, and barring any further drama, it should remain that way until a federal election is called, which is scarily soon. But No, it's yeah. scarily not soon enough. Okay, we better explain again, because you were on the podcast a few weeks back and did, did do the disclaimer that, that your public role is different from what you're saying on the podcast, but just in terms of announcing what your connection is with things and why it is that you might want to have a little bit more time to prepare for an election, whereas the rest of us are like, bring it the fuck on. So, yes, I'm a member of the National Council for the Australian Greens. Um, So obviously all of the views that I express on this podcast are mine alone, but I do have that connection to the party. But actually one of the reasons that I think the election is scarily close is because I'm actually a little bit interested to see what happens in a minority government with the Liberals in government and beholden to MPs independent MPs who want to see kids off Nauru. So that's actually the reason I'd like there to be a little bit more time before the election, because I am hoping that we see some changes as a result of Karen's election last week. Hang on. So your theory is... Okay, so obviously the best outcome for the kids on Nauru is that the Liberals lose and that Labor wins, but in a minority government itself with the Greens holding the balance of power. Obviously that's the outcome by which actual pressure can be put to have an actual humane outcome, not just the bare minimum of removing kids and leaving everybody else there or removing kids and doing that by trading off something even more monstrous. But you're, are you suggesting that you're thinking that perhaps, given that the risk is that Labor just wins in and of its own right and then therefore doesn't have to do anything, that maybe the Liberals having to work with Karen Phelps gives us our best chance? My concern is that if the Labor Party take government and have further heinous solutions solutions in, in inverted commas there to deal with... Given that they did this shit in the first place. That's right. And so if the Liberals are in the opposition and Labor forms government, even a minority government with the Greens in the balance of power, if they team up with the Liberals on legislation to deal with refugees, it won't matter that the Greens are in the balance of power. So my concern is that even a fantastic electoral outcome for progressives in this country can still see really horrific outcomes for people seeking asylum and refugees, particularly those that we've imprisoned offshore. So I feel like there's been pressure building 
and that we have a very small window, a unique opportunity right now where we have conservatives beholden to independents who are saying this is important to them. And I would love to envision a future in Australia where Labor wanted to treat refugees humanely, but I'm not willing to place all my eggs in that basket. So I do want to see if there's any chance, and there's very little sitting time left, even if the election isn't until middle of next year. There's very little time left to see meaningful legislation come through, but I guess this last week I've had a little bit of hope with the fact that voters in Wentworth chose to vote for a person who campaigned really strongly about the rights of refugees and about the particular circumstances on Nauru and also on climate change. So for me, there was a lot of positives to take away from Wentworth. There are many things I disagree with Karen Phelps on, but I'm really hoping that while she's in parliament and while there's a minority liberal government, that there can be some changes on really important things. Is there anything that the liberals are likely to try? I mean, I suppose they've already got their expensive small small in quotes business tax cuts through is there anything that they can do i mean when you say there's not many sitting days until the next election it's still not due till what may next year so they've still got i mean that's a big chunk of time for them to do some evil shit it's a big chunk of time but it's not necessarily time that they will put to use in terms of building legislation they'll be looking to for to the election right so but isn't that worrying because it implies that they while refugees are still there's still electoral gain to be made from demonising them, probably more than from helping them. Well, when I say helping them, I mean just treating them with basic humanity. Isn't there a risk that before the election we're likely to get worse outcomes because they're going to be trying to win an election off scale? They're likely to find some way to be nastier to them rather than after the election where Labor has got a bit of time. Like the one time that things got better was after the 2011 election where Labor got in and then... Then, of course, it plummeted shortly after that because they didn't do a very good job of doing it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here thinking, you know, this will all magically go away or be fixed because of the looming election. I just think that there is a slightly better chance than at other times up to this point for the past few years and that may exist post-election. However, we do have a situation where the only outstanding legislation that the government has announced and not yet got through Parliament that they are still pushing is their energy policy. Just about everything else that they've been talking about and trying to achieve has either been done or dropped. So we go into the dead period over Christmas. We're still going to try their their um, response to the religious the Radic inquiry. I'm not going to call it a religious freedom inquiry. And I don't I, who I'm from. Who it was from News Corp who responded to me tweeting that, look, can the media stop please calling it religious freedom, which is the rights term for religious privilege? It's not. And and that the response was, well, we have to refer to it by the name of the inquiry. Like they called it the religious freedom inquiry. Like we've got to call it by its name. No, you don't. If they give it a ridiculous, inaccurate name, you can, I mean, you can put it in quotes. You can say what the government calls a religious freedom inquiry, but it's clearly not a religious freedom inquiry, as we saw by the fact that the the bits that have been leaked from the report demonstrate that they were happy to state that these rights, religions shouldn't have the right to discriminate on. They shouldn't be able to discriminate on race or sex. They shouldn't be able to discriminate on those things. So clearly they're not like, these are absolute religious freedoms. All they came back saying that religions should be able to discriminate on was LGBTI people and that it's a it's an inquiry about to what extent can people discriminate against LGBTI people and use religion as an excuse. And we saw this week that Scott Morrison, who we'll get to him and the kids on Nauru, we'll go back to it. But in terms of the effect on LGBTI people at schools, 
he wasn't willing to even come to the party and even talk about the rights of LGBTI staff, whether teachers or other staff working at a school who don't have any real interaction with kids at all, like in terms of what their connection is with giving values to the children if they've this, this important value is to think of LGBTI people as second-class citizens, which I would say is an important value to have counted. But anyway, Morrison wouldn't even talk about that. As far as he's concerned, religion, religious schools, religious hospitals, whatever, should be able to sack LGBTI stuff. He's not interested in talking about that. But he was saying that he would talk about making sure that LGBTI kids couldn't be expelled. And then the draft legislation leaks this week, and they specifically leave in the power of religious organisations to expel gay kids. So, yeah, I agree that there may be more horrific things coming, but at the moment their legislative agenda is pretty much winding up towards the next election, right? So that sort of stuff may be the kinds of things they're trying to get through next year, but thinking about big-ticket items, things that have been announced in budgets, so forth, all of that has pretty much worked its way through the system. As I said, they've either dropped it. Or it's got through and we're all screwed from this. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's come out the other end as diarrhoea, right? So, yeah. like... So we had no action on climate change. We're fucked. And, and well, still- as, as I said, the energy policy is the one thing that is big that they're still trying to get through. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and, and how it goes now with the new crossbench in the lower house. Um, it wasn't their big announcement. Like Scott Morrison's like, we've got this uh, default energy price. We're going to enact the recommendation of the ACCC. You know, this is our plan for dealing with energy prices. Except it was exactly what Malcolm Turnbull had like already announced and Labor had already announced like 10... They, this whole thing was bipartisan 10 weeks ago. It was already established and they've, like, they've got so little to offer on the subject that they've just gone, why don't we just pretend that this is a new thing and hope nobody pay, nobody notices? Right. So they've got, like, you see what... They've got very little to do at the moment oh, and yeah. they don't want to make more work for themselves because it seems like the more work for themselves they create, the more opportunities to fail they create and the more opportunities for spectacular public embarrassment they create. Yeah, the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison government is one of the few governments I've ever seen that has so much empty legislative time. Like, they didn't just, you know, adjourn off Parliament for a week when they were having their leadership fight and just try, oh, we don't have anything to discuss in Parliament. We've got our own shit to deal with in the Liberal Party. But there have been lots of other occasions where they've just had empty Senate lists and nothing to talk about. Of all of the Parliaments we've ever seen, this Liberal-led one seems to have very little to say and do. It'd be very interesting to know in modern times whether it's the least productive Parliament Because, I mean, I remember one of the few things that I always think about with the Gillard government that was supported by independents and the Greens, that it was the most productive parliament in our history. They passed more legislation. And at the time, a lot of it was relatively good legislation. Not all of it. Don't get me wrong. I am more than happy with this evil government doing as little as possible. It's not like I'm encouraging them to go out there with their legislative agenda and try and get more shit through. Please, guys. Take a load off. And these guys, it's the Liberal Party we're talking about. Take a load off. Just relax. You know, go on holiday. That's fine. Take it very easy. <laughs> so I don't know how, what else they'll try and bring out aside from this legislation responding to Ruddock's report, but there shouldn't be a great deal going on, partly because we've got Victorian election. Then we're going to have Christmas. It'll all die down until February next year. That will be then leading right into the New South Wales state election, which happens at the end of March. So there'll be a whole lot of political noise going on. There's going to be more drought shit over summer. It's going to get even if we've got this giant... I did... Okay, the one thing... We'll talk about Morrison's other shit this week in a moment because we'll go back to the um, Children on Narrow bit and his interview with SBS this morning, Friday morning, when we were recording this. But I did... Look, to the extent to which the Liberals have any wit whatsoever, referring to their $1.3 billion drought fund as a non-rainy day fund 
can't, that, that's a, there's an element of wit there. You've got your rainy day fund, and then this one's about the drought. It's the non-rainy day fund. <laughs> that's... I, won't, I won't even give them that, sorry. <laughs> Hello, future editing the podcast, Jeremy. Just interrupting to note that this bit that I thought was amusing, and there's a bit more of me thinking it's amusing to come. <sighs> Never give them the benefit of the doubt. Turns out that the Libs are taking the money for this drought relief fund from the NDIS. They are robbing disabled people to buy off farmers. So I recant everything that's about to come and has just been mentioned, suggesting that this is in some way amusing. Because no, with this mob, it's always depressing. Back to the podcast. <laughs> harsh. It's bloody green. They harsh won't judge. laugh. They know, won't laugh at you know. Quality material from Grindr. This is this is why you know your your right wing cranks like Grindr. I don't know what Daisy Cousins and <laughs> she's always saying that the lefties don't have a sense of humour. See, quality work like non rainy day fund. Well, it is a great achievement of mine to prove Daisy Cousin right on something. <laughs> so... It's hard. <laughs> like you've got to work I hard. To... Like she is a very very silly person saying ridiculous things pretty much all the time. And, in fact, that one is also wrong because clearly the vast majority of comedians are, in fact, lefty-leaning, not right-wingers. And I don't think Scott's going to be headlining the Melbourne International Comedy Festival with a non-rainy day fund. Waka waka. I don't know. Is that what Fuzzy Bear did? Waka. Oh, wait. Hang on. He's drawn as Fuzzy Bear. Wait. That reference actually made sense and drew back to Scott Morrison by accident. I mean, intentionally. Intentionally. Anyway. So, well, on that note, someone should tell Daisy Cousins that we actually use laughter as a coping mechanism to try and, like, survive this fucking horrific government. But anyway, we do need to go back and just quickly touch on potential things that may be happening with Nauru um, and refugees. So I'm going to be quick. I've got audio of Scott on SBS this morning, and it's I'm going to be playing it to you so that you can react to it because you okay. haven't heard it yet. <laughs> All right. Well, before we do that, I might just flag one of the other reasons that I'm Let's say ten percent hopeful, as opposed to my usual like level of zero point zero one percent hopeful. This is great. We need more of this. Like, I know. I know. I mean, 10%. hypothetically, I should say we should leave this to the end because you know it's always nice to leave Ooh. the podcast. I don't know we, if it's that. <laughs> we're doing Australia versus humanity at the beginning, so that there's a potential for something positive by the end of the week. But we started. Yeah. I suppose we started with positive being the Liberals lost Wentworth, and negative being Australia versus humanity. So who knows? Like, I think no. The last thing is sending new start recipients off to farms. So yeah, no. Sorry, it's going to be a downer. So we did have uh, a few signals this week that there may be a shift in the public mood that may push the government towards doing something vaguely humane, which would be a huge relief for many people and would, I don't know, hopefully start some compassion in the Australian polity towards people seeking asylum. So we did have an interview come out in the last 24 hours with a former Home Affairs employee who has said there is no reason to leave people on Nauru and Manus. He has said that he is a strong supporter of the current boat turnbacks policy and that within the Home Affairs Department, it is known that the current detention of people in offshore camps is completely unnecessary. So I thought that was a pretty radical thing to happen this week and by itself probably would have had about as much effect as any other whistleblower who has come out and spoken against these policies. But combined with their loss of Wentworth to Karen Phelps, who's very strong on refugees, um, and also Julia Banks, having come out, um, a government MP who will be leaving at the next election, has come out this week and said not only that she believes we must get the children off Nauru, but she has 
in all of her grace, said we should get the children and their families off Nauru, which I was really relieved to hear, actually, because I'm a little concerned that we've been way too focused on the Kids Off Nauru campaign. And I completely understand why that campaign has been run in that way. But it's very important to remember that so many of the people we're harming are not children. Yeah. Um, and it's not the psychological impacts are just as severe. And the physical health effects have been horrific for adults as much as children. So... I don't know whether the tide is turning, but it feels like there's this new awareness and mainstream media is talking about this more than it has in any time that I can remember since the Tampa. We have Carl Stefanovic coming out and saying kids should be off Nauru. These are not people I usually consider my allies. And um, I'm well, really relieved to, to at least hear these views being aired. Not that I want to throw cold water at any of that, but what the like, uh, Sean Hands, who had worked for Home Affairs, was arguing was that it's not necessary anymore to do all of this stuff to the people on Nauru because we have boat turnbacks and our ring of steel mm. and that our approach to Australian paranoia about refugees coming here has been to go with both. We must brutally persecute those who arrived here before we were doing that uh, and also we must do that, but for some reason we need both, whereas you would think that one or the other would be sufficient. Uh, although the brutally persecuting people one was never going to be sufficient because unless we are it required us to be worse than the worst countries in the world in order to deter people because otherwise I'd say we achieve that. Well, I mean you'd have to because anything less than as bad as the places they were fleeing you would still flee. Like the only way you could possibly do deterrence is to be a monstrous country worse than the worst places in the world. So we, since Australia shouldn't be doing that, that was never going to be a decent plan. As for the ring of steel if you've got that in place, which the government says it has, and Morrison is lying again this morning saying that uh, we've stopped people attempting the journey, which is not true. Like, people are still trying and being dragged back to sea. So the fudge, the classic fudge of nobody's arrived here, except for the people who arrived in the Daintree recently, but um, nobody's arrived here is not the same as nobody tried to get here. Those are two different things, and the government fudges them all the time. But I guess... It's good that there is a bit of a sense of we don't need to be brutally destroying these people anymore because we've got this other way of blocking people from coming here. Um, so it's good that we're contemplating being kind and being humane to one group of people. But of course, it's still subject to the... it's And it's entirely dependent on... It's not that these people are going, actually, we should let people, refugees, come here and we should do our you know, duty as citizens of the world and it's not going to destroy us. That's a fucking lie. Everything that's... To people aren't going to be drowning at sea if we let them come here safely. There are safe pathways we could let them have so that nobody's engaged in boat journeys. They're only going by boat because we won't let them have visas to come by air. Like, there's plenty of things that we could do when we improve our processing in Indonesia. The whole premise of stopping people is what's the problem. And if we have to sign off on the idea that we have to keep refugees away in order to get them off narrow, that's the deal. That's what that's what's being offered, and that's what I mean, that's the argument I was having with Aaron a couple of weeks back. Of well, if they're going to offer this and we get these people off, isn't it worth it? Even if we have to sacrifice the other people, and I'm like, I don't really think it is. Um, but then the government was offering this this week, this idea of we'll let some of them go to New Zealand if you'll sign off on this other legislation that, that they can't ever come to Australia for any reason whatsoever. Like, So they're well established in New Zealand, they've got a brilliant career or whatever, and they want to come to Australia for a conference or a holiday. We've got to have legislation that they absolutely can never come to Australia for any reason whatsoever for what reason other than absolute spite. Anyway, that was put up there, and Labor and the Greens said, oh, okay, well, if that's the price we have to pay, 
That's what I. That's what was being reported. Is that not true? That's not what the Greens. That what was reported was that the that both both Labor and the Greens said, look, we're willing to negotiate on that. The Greens said we're not willing to negotiate on it for the people who are still stuck on Nauru, as I heard. Um, so we'll agree to it in relation to the children who go to New Zealand, but we're not going to change the law about the ones stuck on Nauru. And Labor was just like, well, we're willing to negotiate. And then Scott pulled it off the table anyway. He like made the, the Progressive Party and Labor compromise and say where, how far they were willing to go. And then, yoink, fooled you. So, yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of what announcements were made by the Greens. So I will look at that because I'm interested in refugee policy, obviously, and have worked really hard to make some what I view as positive changes to our refugee policy. But... What I would say is I don't think that the discussion about boat turnbacks versus holding people in detention is the same as taking people out of detention and putting special visa restrictions on them. At the moment, we're already doing boat turnbacks. We are causing that harm. Yeah. We are also causing harm to people who are stuck in detention. So if we stop putting people in detention and continue the horrific policy of boat turnbacks, all we have done is stopped harming one group as we continue to harm yeah. another. So, so that I can extent, fully support. To what extent should the Greens compromise on that, on, on the boat? You know, if the, if the deal is put, we'll save, because it seems to me that the answer is not at all. And this isn't a case of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Because if you agree to the principle that boat turnbacks and stopping people arriving is actually an, a, a desirable aim, you are basically now supporting the whole idea that, that took us here in the first place. That's it. Obviously, you want the individuals who are stuck on narrow off but it's it i mean isn't this effectively like a hostage negotiation situation it's basically the how much do you give to terrorists like the government is basically saying you will hey here's some hostages that we'll release if you give into our demand to accept our fucking monstrous idea about boat turnbacks like to what extent should other parties go well you know at least if we we know we can't change that other thing at least if we we back them up on that then we rescue those other people but what you're actually doing is giving them a, an encouragement to do it again because, hey, look, we got look what we got out of them by holding hostages. We should take some more hostages. We should do this again. And B, you're helping them with the fundamental line under like So it seems to me like this is a case where crossing that boundary is precisely the aim. And if we let them use those people as those hostages to get us to do that, it's not just a, oh, well, we'd have to compromise ourselves and, and sacrifice our ideological purity or whatever. It's that we are specifically making things worse in the future. Yeah, so I guess my point is that there is no... So if there is a piece of legislation that says we will allow people to go to New Zealand but we will bar them from coming to Australia in future... Which is an absurd fucking thing to do. Like, that's a, such a dumb... Like, how do you vote for that shit? Yeah, so I think that's completely reprehensible and completely, like, no, you just can't support so, that. So if, However, the, if the bill is there and they won't separate it out... Like now we're just giving ourselves fucking impossible things. But so that's well, what the government was saying that they were going to do. They were saying, we'll put up a bill, they can go to New Zealand, but uh, the other part of the bill that you would have to vote for, you have to vote for the whole thing, would be, they, you know, there's the extra visa things. They've already got limitations on. It's not like New Zealanders can come fucking to Australia very easily anymore anyway. But Yeah, so, well, I mean, fortunately, from the perspective of progressive activists in Australia... New Zealand has said, that's bullshit, no way. Like, we're not creating a second class of citizen from New Zealand who's not allowed to travel to a particular country. Oh, New Zealand said no fuck. Absolutely. So at the moment, the government's... Yeah, at the moment, the government's option is not to say to Labor, which, and I really don't think that... Like, if they could get Labor on board, they wouldn't need the Greens. I didn't think of that solution. New Zealand turning around and going, nah, fuck off. Basic (laughs) humanity says no. 
That? So, oh, thank God. Thank you, New Zealand. Like, yeah. So, therefore, at the moment, that's not an option for the government, right? There is a building discussion about the idea of evacuating certainly people from Nauru and the idea that New Zealand isn't going to take them all means we're going to have a discussion or we're already starting to have a discussion about bringing those people to Australia. Now, if the discussion is going in that direction... It is not you must support legislation to continue boat turnbacks and bring people to Australia because boat turnbacks already happen, right? Mm. So there's no new legislation to make that happen. It's just a matter of we're going to bring people here. And in fact, they don't even need legislation to do it. The Home Affairs Department can just do it. Like there's literally, yeah, yeah, actually I may be wrong on that because I don't recall what happened with Rudd and when they made the decision to never allow people who came by boat into Australia, whether they did that by legislation. So I could be wrong on that. But Essentially, my point is, if the if the option is to bring people here, we should only do it if there are not inhumane conditions on that. We should only support it if there are not inhumane conditions. But it seems as if New Zealand has shut down the option of this weird threat from the government that you have to violate some rights to assist these people. And in fact, the government has done everything in their power to stop people coming here when the courts have ordered them to do it. Like, they spend a lot of money and resources trying to make sure that the sickest kids don't come here. Absolutely, which is why it's so repulsive to see them now crowing about supposedly bringing kids here. It's like, no, you were required to do that and resisted directions from the courts. As long as you fucking could get away with. I suppose that leads us neatly to Scott's interview this morning on SBS and a bunch of the bullshit that he says. So what I'm going to do... I'm going to play it to Kristen, and we'll get Kristen's response to hearing the bullshit that Scott is coming out with as it happens. The drought's your number one domestic priority. The new member for Wentworth and the crossbench have said that their number one domestic political priority is getting kids off Nauru. Mm. What do you say to them? Well, our form is that we've been getting the children off Nauru for years. And more importantly, we haven't been putting more children on Nauru. My head is exploding, like... Our form is getting them off Nauru. No, your form is trying to do everything in your power to keep them there, you fucking asshole. Yeah, I'm a little bit speechless and uh, like kind of on the verge of I'm just quite shaking with rage at the moment. The idea that they have done anything to try and get children off Nauru is it's not laughable. It's not funny. It's evil. It's evil and horrific. And the amount of money, the amount of money that this government has spent fighting doctors, refugee advocates in courts to keep these children imprisoned and they say that they're not imprisoned they currently count children who are trapped on Nauru because of our government's choices as not being in detention because they don't lock them up 100% of the time they have recently had to bring people here because they have been ordered by the courts and because public pressure has grown and because they have lost the seat of Wentworth not because they have had any priority at any time to get children off Nauru And when he says he hasn't been adding children to the detention in Nauru, yeah, that's because when you intercept them at sea, you drag them back to fucking sea. Yeah, okay, so the justification for Nauru is we don't want people drowning, and your solution to not putting children on on Nauru is to drag them back to sea. I'd also argue that imprisoning people who have children actually means you are adding people to Nauru because there are people who haven't been able to leave Nauru who have had children there, yeah. children who've been born there. There are, of course, new children on Nauru who weren't there five years ago when this first started. There is, in fact, a doctor who has been uh, assisting the children on Nauru uh, despite the efforts of the government who is interviewed on this week's, well, it was last week's, but one of the last couple of weeks, uh, Guardian Australia podcast. Very worth listening to. But yes, he's talking about a, I think it was a seven-week-old child who they couldn't even get 
blood from or whatever and who desperately needed it to be in a proper medical facility with an MRI machine and various things to keep the child alive and the government fought that. Yeah, I just want to add um, to anyone who hasn't listened to that podcast, I also really strongly encourage people to go back and listen. It is very difficult listening and I think it was hardest because he does have so many specific individual cases that he is working on right now to recount, but it's what we shouldn't be turning away from. You know, it's the whole point of this segment is to make sure we keep our eyes open to the effects of these policies so that we can maintain the energy to keep trying to fight them after all this time. So I'm not quite sure how Scott claims that Labor brought this seven-week-old child in when they were last in power five years mm. ago. Labor is very impressive at bringing in pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-born uh, children, like, you know, four or five years before they were conceived. God, they're cunning. That's, that's Labor. Classic. <laughs> Evil. Should we go back to... I mean, if, if, we've had a few moments without Scott. Or he's calmed down a bit. Okay. You don't get kids off Nauru by putting more on with with policies that lead to kids getting on boats again. And no one understands that better than our government because we've had success. Oh, sorry, he was just talking about the things that, that encourage people to get on boats again, like persecution. And fortunately, the Scott Morrison government has in fact solved persecution around the world. No, they haven't. They've just bullied the people into staying in it. Oh, yeah. We've contributed quite a lot to persecution around the world, actually. We are doing our bit on that front. That's true. Not, not solving, but we, but causing some, yeah. I mean, we've, we've, we've got 8,000 children out of detention. Stop! <laughs> What the fuck? 8,000 children out of detention. Yeah, so there were 2,000 in detention when they got into government. and So <laughs> so when I came back to Australia, which was about three, three and a half years ago, my understanding is that we had a peak of around 30,000 people in detention. That included people in community detention. 30. Yeah, and he's suggesting, <laughs> what it sounds like he's suggesting, is that 8,000 of those people were children and that they were in detention, which some of them, I mean, there were some children in community detention and they generally don't count those people as being in detention. So I don't know where the fuck he's getting That's this right. figure from. They, didn't they redefine a bunch of people in detention as not detention anymore? Whilst they, were still, they still didn't have liberty, they were still restrained, but they just suddenly said, hey, look, you're not in detention. Yes. And didn't they also just suddenly claim that there were no children in detention, although yes. suddenly there are, like in this interview in a moment, he'll, he'll concede that, I think he says that there are like 50 children that they're currently holding now on Nauru. Like... Their lines are all over the place because they, they, they definitely declared that there were no children being held in detention anymore. And he's claiming that he hasn't added any. So what the fuck are the 50 children? Yeah. Did they travel from the future? Like, what? <laughs> Look, I Doctor think their, back on, this claim of 8,000 kids out of detention is so laughable. I can't even, I mean, I can believe it, I guess, that he said it. But there is no point where we have had 8,000 children in detention at one time. And I'm pretty sure that the report that the Human Rights Commission did into children in detention in 2014 had the number at that time at about 1,300 or so. I mean, that's obviously horrific, but well, I mean... Well, he's claiming that the, that the 8,000 is over time, but if there were only 2,000 people in detention when they no, got that in... was that was 2,000 kids, I'm pretty sure. Oh, 2,000 kids. Yeah. But but if he's claiming that he didn't add any, then where did he? How did he remove eight thousand? It's absolutely boggling, and it's a shame. I I presume that the journalist didn't have the facts to hand to counter. No, and that's I mean that's a classic thing when you're a lying politician like yeah. Scott Morrison. You're following the Trump thing. You just throw out numbers, and because they're not numbers the journalist has heard before, because you just made them up, they don't call you on it. Because I suppose what the journalist needs to say is. Wait, how do you get that 8,000 figure? What's that from? Because I suppose the journalist doesn't ask that because they expect that Morrison would say, well, that's from the department. But because what the journalist should do is like, over what period? But then it derails the whole interview. So they can't, like, 
no journalists do that. But what they should do is yeah, go. Sorry, you removed eight thousand. You said there weren't any over the, what period? And the, I mean, even if the justification was the department gave us those figures, the department publishes their figures, so it'd be mm. very, very easy to just look at it and go, no. So <laughs> no. you're stating that eight thousand. Just be very clear about what you're stating, uh, Mr. Morrison. You're stating that your government over what period released eight thousand children? What? Ha- where to? No journalists do that. But they also never call bullshit on the claim that they've stopped the boats. They regularly say, we've stopped the boats. And in fact, in this interview, he will repeat that. In fact, he'll go one step further because he's forgotten what the light, like his his little trophy has, has so, you know, the little trophy he's got in his office about, I stopped oh, these. God. Yes. It's helped him in his gradual and consistent journey away from reality to the point now that he's forgotten that the fudge of stopping the boats is arriving. And in this interview, he actually claims that he stopped them, stopped them coming. Stop them even taking the journey. I mean, like, at least from the perspective, and I know that journalists at the moment are under a huge amount of pressure in their workplaces, and it's probably why they don't get uh, the kinds of questions out as often as I'd like them to, but stopping the boats is the government line and there isn't information published that counters it, right? The Border Force says, on water matters, we won't give you any data, so there's no, like, easy place to point. They've considered to send it. The Senate estimates all that they're all these boats still coming. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. There is data that proves yeah. that that was a lot. That, that, and then they go, oh, no, no, we just said they stopped arriving. Yeah. But that is that is clearly misleading. You have been deliberately trying to imply. And, and it's not just accidentally misleading. It's deliberately misleading because, like, if your line is this has to happen to stop them drowning, then them arriving isn't the problem. Them taking the journey is the problem. And then when you say, well, they drowned at sea and now we've stopped the boats, that's clearly those two things being connected is clearly about the journey. And that's a lie. They, you haven't stopped them taking the journey. They're still taking the journey. You've had to concede it. What it would be nice to see is some journalists going and doing some digging about people who have departed from Indonesia and how many of them have returned. Because obviously when those boats get turned back, we're not making sure there's no duty of care. To, well, there should be a duty of care, but that's not the role we've taken to make sure that those people arrive safely back to the point of departure either. So, And that's ignoring the whole issue of sort of those who are deterred from trying to go to Australia who go somewhere else more dangerous. Like, those who would previously gone to Australia and now aren't, like, where are they? What are they doing? If that was the best option. Well, they're just in Syria getting bombed, so, you know. In Syria getting bombed, they're being dragged back to sea, or they've taken a more dangerous route somewhere else. Yeah. Like, they're not suddenly safe. (sighs) Hang on, we've just been winding ourselves up. (laughs) Okay, before we go back to the very depressing uh, Scott Morrison lying about refugees and trying to double down on harm and and dissipating any of the, the energy that you were talking about, like being something that we could look forward to that maybe might happen, uh, doing his best. <laughs> I told to, you I was only 10% optimistic. Yeah, we're doing everything he can to dampen that. So we'll go back to the really depressing stuff. But before that, there was him re-releasing the Malcolm Turnbull policy uh, this week where he was talking about energy prices because they ignored the climate. We're all fucked on. Uh, his attitude is, no, will burn the planet down, fuck it. And uh, here is that $1.3 billion for a non-rainy day fund. That didn't work the second time either. Bugger. God will probably stop the climate from changing, so, you know, he's, he's just... It's setting us up for the rapture. Stupid lefties, they don't realise that this doesn't matter because God's going to come and it's very important that we go through the seven years of tribulations or whatever it is, and, and this is part of it, so, you know, Maybe fuck you all. instead all... of just having a reverse ratchet, we could have a reverse global conspiracy, and this is actually a vast Christian conspiracy to bring upon the rapture, actually. Climate change is all about making sure that the prophecies are seen through well the jerusalem thing is certainly supported by evangelical christians for that reason although not by the jews in wentworth apparently first of all like and it definitely was about wentworth like um the defense minister uh, admitted that, that the first time that she'd ever heard about the, this was after he was basically announcing it to everyone and in the conversation when he spoke with her about it 
she was asked point blank was the by-election in Wentworth discussed and she refused to answer the question. So clearly it was about that by-election. But um, they announced it so late that all of the the particularly uh, conservative Jewish voters they were pitching at who were not going to vote on a Saturday for religious reasons would have already pre-polled. So and their attempt to pitch was just, you missed the voters that you're aiming at, you incompetent boobs. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to some uh, Jewish voters in Wentworth last weekend and I have to say that they didn't really appreciate the assumption that they would be keen to see more tension and more conflict happening uh, in the Middle East. So it didn't seem to go down exactly the way that he might have hoped. Okay, I want to describe to everybody the video that if you haven't seen it on Twitter, I'll, I'll, and I'll retweet it from Will, maybe say, I can't retweet it from my own Twitter account because Scott Morrison's blocked me, which also means that I couldn't retweet the bit where he tweeted me back in 2010. At Jeremy Sear, you need a majority in the House of Representatives for a mandate. What is Labor teaching the kids in our schools? 18th of September, 2010. Now, I don't have the faintest idea what I tweeted at Scott Morrison before that, and I can't say it back because he, he's long since blocked me. But yes, yes, Scott, you need a majority uh, for a mandate. So good, I hope, hope you're not planning on bringing anything in between now and the election because <laughs> you don't have one. But the other thing he tweeted, which we'll tweet from, well, may we say, is this weird video where he's talking about the power prices. Um, weird? Well, no, so natural. So look, if you haven't seen it, like the, the, the content of it is this, this garbage shit about, about how he's going to bring prices down and pretending this is a new new policy of uh, adopting the ACCC recommendation, that particular one, when you know Labor and Malcolm Turnbull had previously agreed on it like 10 weeks ago. So it's just nonsense. But the video is hilarious. So older listeners might remember the start of Family Ties. Where Some Alex... of us might not, <clears throat> and that's okay too. Some of us had never even heard about Family Ties until today. <laughs> Anyway, you might remember the bit of Family Ties where like, they try to show that, uh, that Michael J. Fox's character, Alex P. Keaton, is really cool. Pans in on him, just he sort of pushes away from his desk on a wheelchair and sort of spins around and taps the paper and puts his arms up. Like, this is a mid-action shot. And sort of... I think that everything that Scott Morrison does is like based on what's, what he thinks was cool from the 70s and 80s. Like, his constant <laughs> Muppet references, uh, referring to people as narcs. Like, I assume he got that from, like, Happy Days episodes or something. Like, he thinks that the non-cool people are narcs. Like... He's not old enough to have actually been alive in an era where that was what you actually said. It has to be shit like, this is what he was watching in the 70s. He's a strange person. No, he's a perfectly normal and cool person. That is why he has recorded this video, to show everyone what a normal and cool person he really, really is. All right, so I'm going to ask Kristen to just describe what happens at the start of this Scott Morrison video, because it's like, if you haven't seen it, just just watch it. Like, he's trying... Kristen, take us through it. How does it, how does it go? Okay, well, it's a perfectly normal way to address a camera, which is to, As the Prime Minister. As any person, but particularly normal for a Prime Minister. What you want to do if you need to convey a message to the people about your leadership is you want to reverse back into the shot, sit down in your chair, which you're not looking at, whilst typing a text message on your phone because so you busy. are cool and you know how to send text messages which you definitely don't have anyone to help you do, and you definitely have to do whilst also reversing back into your chair, you spin your chair, you face the camera, you shuffle some papers, and straight down the barrel, you met some random people that no one's ever fucking heard of this morning, and let's all hear about why that's important and interesting. Yes. It's casual, and he's got his, arm, his, his sleeves off. He's not wearing a jacket. It's 100% he's a, casual. He's a down-to-earth dude. It and is very natural. He, he cocks up his speech in a moment, but it's just I just dread to think how many times they had to do that take to get him like the, the casual sliding into the chair and putting his phone down. Cause, like, if I had to sum it up in one word, I think I would say smooth. <laughs> 
It's hilarious. <laughs> He's such a boob. It's okay. This person represents us on the world stage. Don't worry about it a bit. Everything's fine. Okay, well, let's, let's hear some more of him talking about depressing shit. Oh, dear. We've closed 17 detention centres. Oh, my God. Please stop. Oh, my God. Oh, my, we didn't get very far, did we? We've closed 17 detention centres and we're back. Oh, my God. Okay, so... They stopped calling them detention centres. They stopped calling them detention centres. But not only did they just stop calling some of them detention centres, they've deported people. They've sent people out of the country who should have, under international law, been granted asylum. They have refouled people. They have refused to allow people to come here to seek asylum. So, funnily enough, the number of people in detention centres has slowly been, you know, there's been attrition. Hey, so we've no but, longer needed all of the detention centres. They centers. may have been shot by the regimes that they were fleeing from when we've sent them back there. But uh, they're not, not in detention have. anymore. There's actually very clear, not necessarily the regimes, but there are direct examples of people who have been refouled and who have been murdered subsequent to being sent back. Oh, um, There was particularly a man who went back to Kabul who the Saturday paper did a very in-depth uh, report about a couple of years ago. But he's not the only one, but he's a, one good example of someone who has actually died and that we know died and that died very quickly after being sent back, after being denied a protection visa. And how the fuck that is not, like, front page news? The whole line is these are fake refugees and they, they're safe when they go back home. The fact that they're being killed should be fucking front page news. We sent someone back to die. That should be a scandal of the highest order. Yeah. And... And this he was killed by the Taliban for coming to Australia and, you know, all of the reasons that he fled in the first place from being, you know, a minority in the area where, a persecuted minority where he was born and where he lived. Exactly what he predicted would happen in his application for refugee status is what happened once he was returned. I'm fairly sure that in the first series, do you remember when they first did Go Back Where You Came From and they had Peter fucking Reith? On? I have never watched that program. I could not bear it. It was depressing, but... So they have assholes who think this is fine, including fucking Peter Reith. So this was talking about stuff that the, the Howard government had done. They took them back there and confronted them with the evidence of people that they had fucking sent back who got killed. Even back then, like even the Howard system. But of course that happens, unless you are so fucking delusional as to pretend that the world is a safe place and nobody would want to be fleeing, nobody would ever flee from a, a tyrant. Then you have to contemplate that... People who are showing up, the refugees, people claiming, seeking refuge, at least some of them, like, even if you're a cynic and think, oh, they just want a want, you know, decent life. So clearly the people who are motivated across the world to start a decent life without persecution, terrible citizens. We shouldn't have people who are motivated to be here because they really want to be here. Like, because you're a fucking idiot. Those people will be great citizens, you idiots. But even if you believe that's a lot of them, how can you possibly think that there are not genuine refugees who are fleeing genuine persecution to believe that you would have to think that the rest of the world is a perfectly safe place and no one ever flees persecution? Which is why DFAT has so many excellent ratings of all of the places that these people are fleeing from and everyone's allowed to travel there at will. Yeah. Also, why specific countries are not allowed... So you could, there are lots of countries you can come to Australia on a pretty easy to get visa but they are specifically not allowed to get them if you're from say afghanistan there are plenty of countries that like we have a racist fucking apartheid visa system that's like if you're from these countries welcome aboard if you're from these countries which are probably the ones you fucking need to flee nah and you've got australians whose attitude if we don't want to go to a country we just apply for a visa and and you get through i don't understand why these refugees don't just go through the process because our fucking racist process won't let them well, and not only that, I mean, it's a myth to even think that there are people who would be allowed to apply for a visa if they are seeking to flee persecution. So you cannot just walk into an embassy in Syria right now and say, hey, I'm part of the opposition. I'm really worried that 
the war that we're currently fighting against you um, is going to kill me and my family, so I would like to apply for a visa to leave. It doesn't quite work like that. You get thrown into a prison and you get tortured. If somebody from the UK wants to come to Australia, they can get a visa really fast. You apply online. If you're in Afghanistan, you want to get a visa to come to Australia and then apply for refugee when you get refugee when you get here. We won't give you a fucking visa. So that's why you get on a boat. This bullshit that we're worried about people drowning at sea is crap. If we gave them a visa, like if somebody was from the UK, they'd fly. This whole line that they're spending a fucking fortune to get on these boats, like people smugglers are ripping them off, making them spend a life so all their life savings. There's an easy solution to that. Hey, how about we don't criminalize coming here on a boat? Then people smuggle won't be able to charge much for it. Madness. Well, there's that. Madness. And and you know, don't smash up the boats so that the only people who will send the boats will send disposable garbage boats, and be people who don't give a shit about safety because the people who give a shit about safety aren't going to send a decent boat to get smashed up when it gets at the other side or a crew that's going to get imprisoned. You'll throw disposable crew and disposable boats, which are fucking unsafe. Like, our whole process forces people to go buy boats and makes them even less safe. Don't fucking tell me that it's Labor letting people come here that caused them to come by boat. It's Labor and the Liberals not letting people come by air and making coming by boat a criminal offence. And refusing to do appropriate processing in Indonesia and other departure points, not funding the UN to do that work, playing silly games with regional negotiations around those things and refusing to take adequate responsibility given our extreme wealth and extreme ability to take people and give them a fairer, safer future and demanding instead that our poorer and less advantaged neighbours take on more burden than we do. Yeah, I do like the line that fuckheads come up with, with like, oh, why couldn't they not? Why couldn't they have stayed in Indonesia? Like, if they were being persecuted in Syria, they weren't being persecuted in, in Indonesia. Why they could have stayed there? They, they might just safe. be locked up in Balikpapan prison, but you know. Well, even when they're not, like, they don't have any work rights. They don't have any human rights. They can't be. They don't have. I would like to see any of these fuckwits survive in a country where the police don't give a shit about them, where anyone can assault them, do what they fucking like to them, and they've got no protections. They don't have their kids don't have any education. They don't have any rights to work. They can't fucking do anything. Oh, you're perfectly safe because somebody's not specifically shooting at you at that second. You can't fucking live. What were you? What are they meant to do? Yeah, there are more rights than just the right not to be shot at. Yeah. And they are important rights. And any of these fuckheads who say that they're not important, I would like to see them do without them for a while. Also, you know, the fact that we've turned this into our major national security issue, when Indonesia is 10 times as many people as us, 300 million people, we've got 25, and we're chucking a, a, a panic about it. If anything's going to change our comfort zone in Australia, apart from, you know, climate change destroying our ability to you know, eat, apart from, you know, Trump starting a nuclear war, getting rid of the, the arms limitation treaties with the Russians. <laughs> Great. Anyway, apart from that, although maybe the nuclear winter will cancel out the global warming. You never know. Maybe I mean, I'm sure it's a precisely calibrated no vegetation. process. We should be sweet. Yeah, it'll be fine. And, you know, there's also there's backup ways that we might not have to deal with either of those things. There's always, have you seen the the latest Boston Dynamics um, walking robot thing that basically can jump up and down and do cartwheel and do parkour and stuff now. To be fair, like those robots have inherit like should inherit the earth. Like they're gonna take better care of it than we have. The earth will be fine even after we've gone. I mean the species on it won't be, but the earth is still gonna be here. We can't destroy the earth. Like the earth is literally Ooh. Don't set the challenge. We can make it unlivable. <laughs> what we're doing is fucking... There was, there's a cartoon. Like, somebody's talking to a giant sort of Mother Earth figure and they're like, I'm, we're sorry for what we've done. Like, we're sorry. I wish we'd... we'd and, and the guy's like, no, no, it's fine. I'm going to be here regardless. It's just you're fucking it up for yourselves. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I reckon the robots will be fine. Like, all of the minerals needed to create them will still be here. They'll have the intelligence to build more of themselves. They'll reproduce. Everything else will die. We'll the Boston fine. Dynamics robots, well, they'll be sweet as. 
Yeah. So what I'm saying is like there are other other options that will destroy our com- you know what we think of as our comfortable Australian way of life. You know, there's nukes, there's climate change, and there's potentially Skynet. But Apart from that, there's also the fact that we are a tiny, populated, very large, very rich country sitting here, basically sticking up our middle fingers to the rest of the world, including really poor and populous countries really nearby. It feels like that is not a particular stable, in terms of history and militaries and so forth, it feels like perhaps one of the ways that we might lessen the potential risk to us might be to let people come here and you know build up our population rather than increasing the differential so that there's greater pressure for bad shit to happen? No, don't worry, Jeremy. What we've done is we've really invested in the international community and the rules-based <laughs> order. So Australia <laughs> Australia has put in great effort to make sure that those types of conflicts don't arise anymore mm. because we mm. are investing not only in the infrastructure of the United Nations, following all of the rules that we've signed up to and encouraging other nations to do the same, but we also have a great foreign aid program that we have slashed drastically. So everyone did, around have- us is getting better off and therefore they don't need to come and invade us. That is oh, the- wait a second. Sorry. That was what we should have done. But instead of that, we did buy those shitty um, giant strike fighters that would be shot out of the sky from oh, miles no. away by the don't Russian Don't worry fighters. about those. The submarines will save us. <laughs> the ones that... Hang on. Uh, aren't we building really shitty submarines? Yeah. Yeah, but they're $50 billion. That's, we've got to get something for that, right? Oh, but then we spent a shitload more on those Hawkeye vehicles from Talos too. Like we spent where, where the auditor looked into it and found that we'd spent twice as much as for comparable vehicles. Uh, and Talos got Christian Porter and the government to suppress that part of the audit report because Talos felt that it would be commercially embarrassing. I can't imagine why they would think that. Because, <laughs> look... Surely, surely their shareholders would be really happy. How is it commercially embarrassing when the story is you made heaps more money than you should have? <laughs> yes, it's almost like I'd say that's more like humanely embarrassing than commercially embarrassing. Now, I'm sure Tesla would argue that the Hawkeye vehicles are better than than the ones that are cheaper, and maybe they are. If they are, why did they need to suppress the report? They pro- surely could have just argued, yes, they are more expensive, but they're better for these reasons, and they, you know, they've got those, they've got special hulls that deflect bombs, and they keep our personnel safer. If they've got an argument, they could have made that argument. The suppressing it and getting the government to suppress it is extremely dodgy. Call me crazy, but they could have just said, oh yes, we actually pay our workers a fair wage, unlike in the United States where those workers earn sweet fuck all and can't afford to live in a house. Um, so that's why ours cost more. Yeah, there, if there were good reasons, they could have said them rather than suppressing it. Anyway, back to Scott Morrison because I want to depress you thoroughly. Oh <laughs> no. Um, we've ensured that we've restored uh, the integrity of Australia's borders, which means these lethal trips are no longer being taken. These lethal trips are no longer being taken. He just flat out lied. Mm, he knows full already... well. <laughs> yeah. Like they got, see, he's forgotten that the line is they they're not they're, they're not being completed or they're not getting here or we've stopped them arriving. Like he's actually claimed that they're not even being undertaken. That's not true. That's the lie. You're supposed to fudge them so you don't actually get caught out lying. He doesn't seem to be too worried in this clip. I've got to say about being caught out lying. With yeah, it's the record so far, and we're only what one minute in. Oh, less than. We're not going to go too, too far. But we'll, we'll, anyway, our interruptions will. Will they? Oh, who can, you haven't heard any more yet. And the number of children on Nauru has been falling. I mean, over 200 children are already off Nauru, and we're now down to a figure of just over 50. And we're continuing to work, particularly through our United States agreement, uh, to reducing those numbers even further. How long and how much money has been spent? How much time and money of lawyers and advocates has been spent in this country to get those children off Nauru? 
That has not happened because Scott Morrison made it happen. It has not happened because Peter Dutton made it happen. It has not happened because Malcolm Turnbull or Tony Abbott or any other fucking member of the Liberal government made it happen. It hasn't even happened because Labor made it happen. It's happened because of the very minimal protections that exist in our law having been taken through the entire process to force those removals. It has happened because children have gotten so sick that they would die if they were not taken off that island. That is the only reason children have been removed from Nauru. There has been no policy to make their lives better. The policy has been fight, 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 harm, 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 make it worse. And then when it reaches absolute breaking point, then we will acquiesce to the legal orders to remove them. Hang on. If you're going to be saying that the Liberal Party can't take credit for the things that happen in spite of them, the things that they... That leaves them nothing. Like, Malcolm Turnbull can only take credit for marriage equality because it happened in spite of all the obstacles he threw in front of it. But that's their... All of their policies are bad. The only good things that they achieve are the things that they they oppose because they have to oppose... Like, that's their party philosophy. We must oppose anything that's not terrible. And then when good things happen, of course it's in spite of them. But you're saying that they can't take credit for the stuff that happens in spite of them. I know, I'm a radical. It's so unfair. (laughs) that They can't win. I mean, okay, they could hypothetically stop opposing good stuff and pushing for evil stuff. But, I mean, they can't do that. So they can't win on your way of looking at things. I'm a hard taskmaster. So, you know, we'll continue to make that practical progress because it is our goal to ensure that we, 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 can, we can get the children off Nauru. The New Zealand deal seemed to be on the table this week. Labor on the crossbench said to the gallery that they were prepared to negotiate. Then that deal seemed to disappear. What happened? They weren't prepared to support the bill. That's, the, that's part of the problem. And, they were and, prepared and, to negotiate. Well, but you don't negotiate your borders. You don't do that. Well, I mean, fuck, mate. Like, not even the Conservatives in New Zealand are happy with the idea of us creating a special case for people who've left Nauru that aren't allowed to come to Australia. I don't know the ins and outs, obviously, of the negotiations between the government and the crossbench and Labor, but the idea that this is ever going to be an option while, I don't know, sane people are in charge in New Zealand, not even in charge. There is no one in New Zealand except from the far fringes who support the idea of bringing in... Well, in fact, no, because the people who would support the idea of creating a second-class citizen in New Zealand wouldn't support taking refugees in the first place. In New Zealand, there are two positions. We accept refugees and they will have the same rights as all other New Zealand citizens or we don't accept refugees. So there's just no one in New Zealand who would support this proposal that has been made by the Australian government. I also like that he starts off there saying... They wouldn't negotiate. And then in a second, he explains what he means by negotiate. I mean, you don't get to negotiate with people smugglers. You, you have to have very clear and unambiguous policies. You talk about it being something that can't be negotiated. Aren't we at a stage where it must be negotiated? It's, it's not a bargaining chip. It's not a negotiation. It's just a practical task we're getting done. We already have negotiated our borders. We changed them. Yes. Oh my god! That's right. He actually. Oh my god! No, no, we didn't negotiate them. We just arbitrarily threw them away to placate, so that, so that those people smugglers couldn't say that they that when they'd reached Australia, it was Australia. We like redefined them. No, no, but we didn't redefine them entirely because they're still conveniently ours when there are like vast mineral resources there. That yeah, we yeah, want yeah. To profit from. It's our special like Clayton's yeah. boundary. So we've got basically a zone which, for some fucking reason, the courts have accepted this idea that you have a zone where we have control when we want it, but no responsibility when we don't. What the fuck is that? That that how does that make any sense whatsoever? How do you have an area where you have control but not responsibility? Like those are 
the same thing. It's a little bit like Nauru, where we have a great deal of control and zero responsibility. But that's the same thing. Like, we shouldn't, that doesn't, it's not a th- real thing. But back to the, what we just had Scott say. Scott's like, they wouldn't negotiate. They didn't just pass our bill wholesale. That's, that's his definition of negotiate. Sorry, they wouldn't negotiate with us, by which we mean pass our thing wholesale without any, any changes. That's not negotiation, Scott. That's, how is that negotiation? He's about to say, though, some stuff that I think is true in reverse. This is the problem that often happens in this place. They don't understand that these, these issues are dealt with in very absolute terms. And unless you're very clear about where your borders are and how you manage them, then the people smugglers, they, they take you all the way. They just take you all the way and, and they, they eventually uh, can get the, the ventures underway and you're back where you started again and you're putting more children on Nauru. Can I just say that if you replace in that sentence the people smugglers with the Liberal Party and borders with principled lines, that is exactly what is happening here and with the whole idea that he was, when they were chucking out, we'll, uh, we'll maybe, we'll agree to say them if you betray your principles on these things because he, he's right. If you do betray those principles in order to make the people smugglers, by which we mean the Australian government, which is actually an appropriate term for them since they do actually pay the people smugglers and in fact are smuggling people around the fucking country in the dead of night and so forth. They are fucking the government of the people smugglers. They're human traffickers. Yeah, but if we cave to them, to the government, with the, the liberals with this bullshit, where we sacrifice the basic principle that human beings are entitled to basic rights and protections, then yeah, we do end up back where we started, which is why well, I don't think that you can trade this shit away because even if you do rescue this particular group, you've established the principle which they then get to digging too further like every time labor's given they gave in on boat turnbacks and now that's like the bottom line and not enough like every every bit of inch of ground you give to the liberal party they take a mile and i think it's important to distinguish too like it's not the liberal party as a brand right because fuck based on what's happening at the moment who knows how much longer they'll be around but every time you give in to someone who's saying um we just need to compromise our values to achieve x Mm. if that is the argument that you need to give up something that's really important. It's this whole idea of horse trading, right? Like, well, you know, maybe we will let children go to school in this electorate as long as you let us shut down the hospital to pay for it. Yeah. No, we need education and health. Like, you don't give up one thing to get another positive thing. Like, it's not how it works. You need to maintain that base level of principle that says there is a certain standard, there are certain accepted rights and responsibilities, like you said, and that we can't adjust those. Because when you do that, all you do is, well, again, like the ratchet is a really good example. You just shift the dial further in the direction oh. of inhumanity. And Well, you encourage them to take more hostages. Hey, look what we managed to get out of them. All we had to do was release the hostages. Uh, how do we get those hostages? We took them. And next time we want something, we better take some more hostages. Yeah. As for his line about people smugglers, you need to hold the line against fucking people smugglers. I, no, you get put them out of business by letting people come here safely. Like, you don't have to be a monster to stop it's people smugglers. Easy. I would like to sit down and watch Schindler's List in a room full of these fucking assholes and hear them, like, screaming at Oscar Schindler for daring to rescue. You know, he's... Hang on, the authorities of the time, the Nazis decide what happens to those Jews and the manner in which it happens. How dare Oscar Schindler be circumventing the rule of law? Fuck you, you fucking monsters. Absolutely. When the rules are fucked, fuck the rules. Hmm. So there are, you know, there, are, there are problems with the New Zealand approach of being a pull factor, because as we've already learnt, um, there are those on Nauru who are starting to say, oh, I mightn't take 
the US option, I might have a better option in Australia. And so that has been complicating our efforts to actually get more children off Nauru. Uh, sorry, no, the fucking Americans won't take them. Like, there are a whole lot of countries the Americans have gone, nah, sorry, you're from that country? No, we won't even take you at all. Yeah, and well, the, the whole <laughs> process is fucking insane. Donald Trump doesn't want to take people. They're not, like, there was so, was so dumb about Malcolm Turnbull's interaction with Trump earlier. Like, he didn't, in fact, he actually explained it to Trump. You remember the bit where he got, he, he had that horrible phone call with Trump and Trump was like, I'm not, this is a fucking bullshit deal. And Malcolm was trying to sell it to Trump by pointing out to him, don't worry, mate, you don't actually have to take any of them. You can just process them and say, okay, no, they didn't qualify. Like, he fucking said to him, you know, and that's what happened. Well, and never mind that our Prime Minister's core pitch here is that, like, we people are thinking that they won't go to the US because Australia is a better option and that that's a negative thing. Like, oh, no, we wouldn't want people to come to our country because it's good. We either need to make our country worse or, like, force these people to go somewhere else. To be fair, that has been the Liberals' policy. Like, and of <laughs> yeah. all of the things that they have done that will, you know, stop. If Look, if you don't like immigration, you don't want people coming to Australia, then yes, you could do worse than vote for the Conservatives because their entire policy platform is to make Australia more shit. And yes, that does stop people wanting to come here. I mean, it makes it shit for you as well, living here, but it does stop other people coming. So if you're you know, already what? rich, maybe you don't have to worry about it too much. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why the Liberals don't just campaign on that. Vote Lib will make Australia shit so no one wants to come here. All right, I think we've had enough of, of Scott Morrison and also we're in an hour of the podcast and we haven't gone on to any of the other things. We've touched on the uh, idea that he won't help the uh, LGBTI staff at schools, but also his, that what, he, that what they've proposed basically just gives religious organisations the ability to discriminate against even the kids that he says that he won't agree to. We had his Power Prices video. We, we actually had a video this week talking about Power Prices where 60 Minutes went to Canada and was like, look, here is Toronto. It's entirely powered by nuclear power. See? And it's cheaper than Australia. Well, no. Actually, when you do the maths, uh, the Australian prices are not more expensive than Toronto. And secondly, one thing about Ontario uh, is it has bloody huge hydro production. It's uh, Niagara Falls are part of that, that whole conflict that's coming up is, is connected to... Yeah, so Ontario is very big on hydro, and the uh, Greg Jericho did an excellent piece in the Guardian calling bullshit on the sixty minutes thing. But no, there's a big pitch from the Conservatives. Whenever they can, they try and squeeze in, like they they shill for coal as much as they can, and then when there's a bit of productivity for coal, that they're like, "What about nuclear? There's no drawbacks to nuclear," and they're like comparing like a fully depreciated plant that's been long since built and the government's or all of the costs have already been covered, and then they're comparing it with things that have to be built now. Like, it's not, they're not even apples to oranges. They're just, yeah. And I'd be really interested in knowing what the um, remaining useful life of that plant is because obviously the replacement cost for a nuclear power plant these days in Ontario. In Terry, oh. It's Ontario. Look, I keep, I, it looks like Ontario to me, but no, according to the Canadian who grew up there, who I'm married to, like, it's Ontario. I mean, as if the people in Ontario know how to pronounce their own state, <laughs> province. God damn it, they're not even so, states, they're provinces. God damn you, Canada, for your slightly <laughs> different way of doing things. So I would assume that when that does reach end of life, I suspect that the Canadian government isn't going to be prioritising replacing nuclear with nuclear, that they'd be looking at more modern, cost-effective, safe, environmentally friendly options. Because one thing that a lot of people aren't doing these days when they think about the best way to communicate is buy a mobile phone from 1992. What they're looking at is what's going to enable them to do the things that they need to do in the modern era, in a modern context. Not entirely redundant technology that has no real benefits. I'm sure Canada's just going to go straight for, for Australian coal. Like, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. Because we've run out the clock so badly on, on everything else we've talked about, I still want to, to hell with it, I still want to talk about how this all fits in with the xenophobia. Like, 
they work so hard, the, the right wing and the right wing media, uh, at stoking xenophobia. And we've got a bunch of state ones coming up. And there, there are some things that we want to talk about from the last couple of weeks that, that fit into this. Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales uh, having a whinge about uh, Sydney and bl- trying to blame it all on immigrants. Uh, rather than their shitty building infrastructure, she wants it to stop. And then she was claiming, "Oh, but like with like with the Opera House, like my dad worked on that. I, I I'm not a you know I value the Opera House, but I want it to be a commercial billboard. My dad worked on it. Uh, likewise, yeah, I was an immigrant, so it's fine that I'm saying that immigrants are to blame for everything that's wrong in Sydney. We're not keeping a pace, and I'm just saying, take a breather. Let's uh, have the state sit at the table. I'm the premier of the largest state in Australia, and until this point, haven't had a say in population. And I welcome the prime minister's invitation for us to do that. I think the state should be involved in that conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would be the last, uh, last to uh, in any way criticise the fantastic multiculturalism we have in New South Wales. I'm proud of it. I'm a product of it. I want it to continue. But in terms of the numbers themselves, we do need to take a breather. Meanwhile, Matthew Guy in Victoria is his whole election pitch is you know everything shit in Melbourne. You know how it's getting busy. You know how there's traffic. Immigrants. We should force them out to the regions. Mm-hmm. And Alan Tudge, the, the population minister from the federal government, declaring that we should be sending immigrants out to the bloody regions with some kind of weird... Like, what are we, we going to do? Like, have, a, have border checks between, like, Melbourne and, I don't know, Wagga? Sorry, did you just say population minister? Isn't he the population minister? It's just that I don't think we've ever had a population... Or it's certainly not in my lifetime... <laughs> I feel like population minister isn't a thing that has existed. I'm not sure whether I just haven't been paying attention. Or um, it's a fucking stupid thing to have a minister for. I mean, there are ways in which it could be really good. For example, if your population minister was in charge of making sure that, you know, the population was served with infrastructure that yeah, met its an needs, infrastructure for example, minister. planning. Because I'm pretty sure, and I can't, I don't have the details on this, but I have, I think I've read about in the post-war era, there was a very intentional campaign to set the country up to absorb a much higher population growth. Oh, and, and we was... definitely need to do that by decentralising. Like, yeah. And, and that's part of, I think, what Albury Wodonga was going under the, under the in the Whitlam years. I think the idea was that was going to be one of those sort of big... And, and we definitely need to have more hubs than just Melbourne and Sydney. Unfortunately, though, before we could do that sort of stuff, you need decent telecommunications infrastructure, for example, and the Liberals have just Madness. fucked up the NBN. Stop it. There would be a lot of people who would be happily... Like, imagine the industry that could take place... Be built in places like Albury or Ballarat. Whatever the... There are big options. There's plenty of tech workers who'd love to be able to live in the country and do their jobs. But unfortunately, Malcolm screwed up the NBN and fucked that that entire potential out of nothing more than a, uh, well, Labor did it, so we must smash it to bits. There are a few blocks in Armadale where you have full fibre to the home <laughs> and uh, property prices in those few blocks are out of control because it's so good that everyone wants to buy on those few blocks. So there is a small, a tiny, tiny proportion of regional Australia that thanks to, again, there being a minority government and um, that having been negotiated very cleverly to make sure that it rolled out first in Armadale, uh, that does have a really world-class NPN and is seeing the benefits but unfortunately those economic factors are only going to be constrained to that small few blocks in armadale how long do you reckon that malcolm's bullshit nbn will will sort of will be saddled with it crumbling around us before a government comes in and actually does it properly or do you think it'll ever happen or we're just basically fucked forever now i hate making predictions i don't necessarily do the things i do with the aim of seeing change in my lifetime so I feel like I, maybe I'm particularly cynical at the moment, given the state of our politics, but without drastic change in the public conversation, I think we'll be living with this for at least a generation. Yeah, because the the fundamental difference between the Liberals' plan, apart from being a shitty old technology, but the fundamental pr- difference between it is the idea that the, it should be just done by the 
mm. market. So the, the profitable ones should get decent internet and everybody else should be fucked, which is something that the Nationals should never have signed up on. Because like the, the, of all of the things that would help country people, the Labor plan for an NBN that was the same everywhere, whether you're in a busy, high population area where it was profitable for companies to do it, or if you're in the middle of nowhere, you were going to get full fibre to the home, full internet. Mm. Which means that wealthier, high population areas were going to be subsidising poorer rural areas, which is something you think the country would have supported. But they voted for the Conservatives and they smashed it up. So the country's fucked. So I presume that we'll end up with, like the city areas are going to end up getting whatever the current technology is eventually, but it'll just be for the rich. Like Yeah, I think, like it'll I think there's already the option available to basically pay an extraordinary amount of money to have it brought to the home. It's just I, that we don't as a community benefit from... That's right. And it will only be your home, not your neighbour's home, even though it would be significantly more economical to have that benefit be sh- shared across multiple homes. But the other huge problem we have now is that this is a sunk cost. All of this money, more than was originally planned to be spent on the full NBN, the original NBN, has now been spent rolling out this substandard NBN. Because so of their bullshit be lie. Yep. Because of their fundamental lie that when you've got a one standard technology but it's new that the cost of it at the beginning is going to be the cost throughout rather than it being once it's, once you started the process it becomes cheaper and cheaper the lives line was no no it's going to cost that much till the end so it's going to be very very expensive so they massively inflated what they claimed that it was going to cost whereas their version was cheap comparatively at the beginning because it was just a hodgepodge of existing technologies but is ultimately much much more expensive because a hodgepodge of more techn- of all these different technologies is really expensive to make even interact with each other so for really obvious reasons their whole approach to this has been one to make it shitter and more expensive Right, so we're going to be paying for this now for a very long time. The money has been spent on something substandard. It is not less money that has been spent. And so I really don't know how a future government is going to be able to come up with a rationale to support reinvesting the same amount again to tear out the crap that's been put in place. So I don't know. I make, I'm not an expert in this policy area and I make no predictions, but I don't see how without a transformation in the economic landscape in Australia, it would be possible to revisit this in the next decade. I mean, it's, yeah, it's oh, that's depressing. really grim. And, <laughs> and that then has an impact on the decentralization stuff, but it also has an impact on our economy and our ability to develop some tech industries. And it's just, uh, just this, this government, the, the five years of, of the Abbott Turnbull Morrison government will have just screwed Australia so badly. But in terms of decentralization, that explains why they have to go with a stick. So, if you had decent things in the decent opportunities in the regions, why would migrants be trying to be in the cities? People go where the jobs are. But if you had infrastructure and people could build in the regions, people would naturally go there. Instead, the government is basically by its current policy ideas establishing, confirming that, in fact, nobody wants to live in the country. It's a second place. And we have to have a second type of visa for migrants to force them into the country. With checkpoints, I guess. I don't know. And also the brain fart from the week before last where Morrison decided that people on Newstart should be forced to go and work on farms. So they abandon, what, you, you, you leave your family supports in where in the city, wherever you've been living. You go out by yourself, find accommodation in the country, do seasonal work. Try not to get injured on a farm when you've got no training and doing labour in, in places where you, basically it's just insane. And do the farm good farmers don't want just unhappy workers being forced to do manual labour. But what what on earth kind of a brain fart was that? 
I'd also really like to know what the plan is for people on Newstart who already live near farms and aren't able to get that work because um, I definitely don't think that all of the unemployed people are living in cities. No. And it's well, not those a people want, solution. They probably do want to force those people to work in the farms. But that's how, how do you get there? There's not like a tram out there. What you- I mean, it kind of implies that they think there are jobs on farms. And my understanding of the current um, climate situation is that the drought has meant there are significantly fewer jobs available on farms. So I really don't – like none of this adds up. I think um, what they're saying is that the farmers are doing it tough. So what if they had cheap labour they didn't have to pay? Yeah, well, that would be consistent with past policy. Well, again, I've said it many times, the fundamental – well, basically the tabloid media pitch for the Conservatives on Newstart – is they pitch at working people being like, these you're working hard and barely surviving. Look at these scroungers sitting around not working and and, and you getting this this uh, new start of payment and uh, you know you should resent them. But people, people who are working class people who are struggling to survive, you don't want the people on new start doing your jobs cheaper. That will push that keeps your wages and conditions down. It makes them worse. You want those people out of the workforce, sitting to the side. You want them to, the, the, the money that's funding them to be being paid by the people a lot richer than you, which is what should be happening in a, in a progressive taxation system. But if those people are sitting there and not working, they're not undercutting your wages. It's, it's also the same thing about bringing in migrants from overseas, to, which is one of the big things that, that, that the, working, uh, the working right-wing people are opposed to the idea of immigrants coming in and cutting your, your conditions, undermining you. Do you know where they can do that? overseas where we don't have any regulations do you know where they can't do it in an australian context where you have workplace minimums and regulations you should want workers here rather than undercutting you overseas and you should want new start people not undercutting you by having to do work for almost nothing thereby why would an employer be paying you a decent wage yeah, I mean, the first challenge with migrant workers is that unfortunately we have been making trade agreements where we've agreed to not have our minimum standards apply to workers who are brought in, which is obviously horrific for those workers and also for people who are already here yeah. trying to find work. So we should just not do that. That's The problem that, there that is that is type a, of visa. absolutely a great idea. But the other um, thing that I found really disappointing, I went to the Change the Rules rally in Sydney this week, which was awesome, but it was really frustrating to hear the limited scope of the conversation so the speakers were really riled up about wages and conditions but they weren't talking about unemployed people they weren't talking about what's happening with new start and i just think if we're going to talk about the right to strike and we're going to talk about we need to go on strike because we're not getting fair pay rises then part of that conversation has to be about the fact that it's easy to avoid those pay rises while there are so many people living on absolutely no money who are desperate for a little bit more than the pittance they get on Newstart, yeah. which is, I believe at the moment, about $100 a week below the poverty line. So yeah. the poverty line is like 440 and it works out that Newstart with everything you can get is about 340 That's if you get rent assistance and other benefits as well. Just Newstart is actually lower than that. And what a swindle. How have the rich basically managed to convince workers that the people that they should be making life harder for are the people who would be able to undercut their conditions. Yeah, it's, it's fucking insane. Don't be trying to make life worse for those people. It makes it easier for the people who are employing you and exploiting you to do it more. Yeah, but I'd really like to see the union movement take a bigger stand yeah. on that stuff because um, there's so much good work being done by the unions, but it's really fundamental to their campaign that we do combat this idea that people on Newstart are ripping you off as opposed to your employer is using the fact that the people on Newstart are desperate for work to rip you off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
All right, well, let's let's leave it there. Uh, we did have one positive thing this week. We had the apology to the victims of child sexual abuse. It, yeah, I mean, I... I, I mean, sorry, positive in the sense of it's, a, right. it's it a negative, happened. but yeah. there was an apology. Uh, and yeah. New South Wales the other week did the thing where they pulled up back on the way that the church was ducking financial responsibility. Yeah, that was a really big win, actually. Some of our MPs worked really hard on that in New South Wales, and we're really glad to see that go through. So now victims of child sexual abuse in New South Wales should be better compensated without as much legal um, stress because the church used to be able to say, oh, we don't have any assets, they're all hidden over here, and that's no longer... We're um, total paupers, they say, you know, emptying out their pockets in front of a fucking huge church building. That's right. So that's no longer um, able to happen. So that's really important progress for people who are um, wanting to make claims against religious institutions. But only in New South Wales, so not Only in New South Wales, but, you know, it's hopefully an important precedent for other states around Mm. the country. You know, as you said, it's not exactly a positive that this apology happened this week, but I hope that it's progress. I just am really frustrated that I feel like we will have future parliaments needing to look back and apologise to children who are still experiencing institutional abuse, whether that's sexual abuse or otherwise, you know, the number of kids we have in prisons, the way we're treating refugee children and, and things well, like and that. And they, they overlap too. Like they, We've had um, instances of sexual abuse against refugee children. And, Absolutely. And it's really yes. hard to find that they've made it as difficult as possible to catch the people who are doing that. And we're yeah. sending guards out there, people, employees of the government who are doing this to the children. That's so, right. So, you know. Well, not strictly employees of the government because they outsourced all that to private contractors. Ah, of course. Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. That's not that positive. Then. What about what about that uh, Gillard had a portrait open this week? It was a very nice portrait. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> like the bit where she's trying to tell everybody see I, I want people to know I want the kids to know that I was a very different Prime Minister I'm thinking mm. it's pity you weren't more different yeah um, that's right yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's easy, I think, now, after the years that have followed, <laughs> to look back on Gillard's prime ministership with rose-coloured glasses. But, yeah, there's there was some really, I mean, obviously on marriage equality, there were some things that happened in the education system. Which made, the marriage equality thing never made any sense. Like, That's that right. was like the biggest fuck you. Like, she wasn't a fundamentalist religious person. She was not even a married person. Like, she was... Her entire opposition to that. Like, she dropped it as soon as it was politically convenient. Like, that was the biggest, most obvious sellout the whole way through. And what a humiliating... Yeah. Like, she should always feel ashamed of that. that she was should, a- but unfortunately, when she compares herself to Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison, she's probably feeling pretty good. <laughs> I mean, even fucking Howard. Like, in her adult life... She's probably pretty much the best prime minister that there's been, which is really grim. Yeah, Drew, Drew when we were growing up, the idea of somebody being a prime minister, you'd, like you'd assume that some kind of, you know, respect and authority was due to them. You know, somehow they must have done something good. You know, what a what an achievement to become prime minister. But nowadays, yeah, nah, you, you were an Australian prime minister. <laughs> Their achievement was that they were flexible enough to like, <laughs> you know, slide under the limbo bar to get as low as they could possibly go. Ugh, Kevin Rudd's out there with his book, which is wailing on everybody. He's such a ah, such a miserable, angry man. And I, I did notice that Tony Abbott was at the unveiling of the the Gillard portrait, and yeah. Gillard's out there. Who knows like, why? Well, his, his brain froze again. It was like she's being photographed with I don't know the, the portrait person and other politicians and stuff, and he's just like awkwardly lurking at the side, like. Exactly like the time when Mark Riley asked him about the, the shit happens remark and his brain froze and he just shook angrily for like a whole minute on camera. Like he's just doing it. Like you look at the footage of him at the Gillard Portrait Unveiling and he's just standing there awkwardly. Seriously, I think that there's a problem in his operating system. It just like hangs. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, he he's him. running on Android. 
Yeah, because <laughs> if he was running on iOS, then they would have forced some unwanted updates over the top of him, and he's definitely not had any updates yeah, for a I long time. Yeah, I haven't had a phone. Like, my phone doesn't freeze, so <laughs> that's not something I can relate to. Can you imagine how Tony Abbott would respond to a compulsory update if he was, at, if he was on iOS? I think it'd be really healthy. Oh, Maybe hell yeah. Should- anyway, we've now reached uh, this short, punchy podcast of an hour and a half. <laughs> oh, God. Kristen, thank you so much for coming back. It has been lovely having you back on the podcast. It's been a pleasure being here, Jeremy. Great to sit across uh, from you in the room to do it this time. Oh, look, I I pick up some verbal cues and I interrupt slightly less. It's fantastic. I love it. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Now, Kristen and I have been working on the getting the uh, otter thing to work so that we will hopefully have some uh, bonus ways of uh, interacting with us as we record. We've been doing tests live as we record this time. And and Kristen's nodding enthusiastically as if it's actually been working. So that's good news. So we are hoping to have something to announce uh, very soon, but it's not quite ready yet. So, you know, there's no point in announcing it and releasing something half-assed. We're not the Prime Minister. Uh, (laughs) I think half-assed is a little generous for him, not for us. We are half-assed at this stage. This is very much on the way to being ready. I don't think many of the Liberal Party policies could be put in the same category. All right. Well, when, when we do have it ready, I will, I'll try and find an animated gif of Alex Keaton pushing himself across the room on his chair to sort of announce <laughs> <laughs> that's what's happened. Uh, so thank you for our Patreon subscribers. You're how the podcast kept going. Thank you, everybody who is keeping on subscribing. Thank you, everybody who has increased their subscription because it will definitely help us uh, as we get to that point. And also, it just helps the podcast keep going. Thank you, everybody who's left us a positive review on iTunes. That is also vital to having people discover the podcast. And thank you, everybody who interacts with us on at Well May We Say on Twitter because uh, it's lovely to hear back from you and to interact and, and um, have feedback and ideas about uh, issues that people that we might have for future episodes. Thank you, Robin Gray, for the music. Alex Lump for the artwork, and we will see you all next week. Good night. Good night, Jeremy.